LFG people! My name is Mauricio Magaldi and I'm joined today by my co-host Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa. How are you doing Kai? Welcome back to the show. I am fantastic. Great to be here. Always love the news episodes. It's great to have you with us. And today's show is a new show and it's a pretty big one too. So let's take a look at the stories and we'll dive right in. Hackers drain 5 million pounds from 8,000 wallets linked to Solana Crypto Network and Nomad Crypto Bridge loses 200 million in a chaotic hack. Then US senators push bill to make small crypto transactions tax free and then Revolut partners with Polkadot to launch Learn to Earn as a feature. To dig into this, we're joined by some fantastic guests, making a welcome return, Emily Nicole, crypto blogger at Bloomberg News. How are you doing today, Emily? I'm great, thanks. And a Blockchain Insider debut and a podcast debut for Paulina Yosko, head of partnerships at Ramp. How are you doing today, Paulina? I'm great, really happy to be here today. Awesome, so let's jump into the first story. We're kicking off with the hack that drained 5 million pounds from 8,000 wallets in the Solana network and also a Nomad, a crypto bridge that lost $200 million in a massive full hack. So for the Solana bit, we saw that nearly $6 million have been drained from accounts that were linked to the network. The Solana Foundation said that a malicious actor had taken funds from a number of wallets linked to Solana and said the hack affected around 8,000 wallets, the virtual equivalent of the wallets that users use to store the keys to their cryptocurrencies. With Nomad, the crypto bridge, the bridge is used to swap tokens across blockchains and lost almost 200 million of the funds. The hack was first acknowledged by the project official Twitter account on August 1st and initially deemed an incident that was later investigated to further development. So let's get into it. I'm going to pass it on to Emily. Emily, what do you what did you see about these two incidents and how do they compare? Well, in the case of Solana, it was a really interesting one hack-wise because normally in the hacks that we've seen so far this year anyway, you kind of get a bit of an alert from the team that's being hacked and they say they're looking into it. Um, but already you kind of get the sense they have an idea of what's going on. In the Solana hack this at this time around they have no idea it was all over twitter like the heads of solana were tweeting at people asking people who said they lost funds you know how did you engage with this crypto what wallets do you have on your phone like you could really tell that it was a massively mad scramble and that's even evident in the amount that's estimated to have been lost in this hack because uh, crypto research firm elliptic says it was about 5.2 million dollars lost but security firm PeckShield said it was about $8 million lost. Um, and so in that situation, it was really unique for that specific reason, right? That just It seemed like nobody had any idea what was going on. And even still now, I think there's a bit of a suspicion about what caused the hack, what the root cause was, um, and that maybe potentially it was a mobile wallet called Slope. Um, but even then, still not really <laughs> for certain, not like others. Um, in the case of Nomad, uh, it was pretty much kind of like, I guess, what you'd call now your routine bridge hack. Bridges have become platforms that are super in focus at the moment because they've become a very big flaw security-wise, particularly for blockchains that are passing assets across one another. Quite a few of the big hacks this year focused on draining bridges of funds. That's Wormhole, that's you know Ronin, Fraxy, Infinity. These are all platforms that have lost funds through bridge hacks this year. Um, and so that's I guess how the two compare and contrast because they were both one was you know pretty standard and has become a very common vector for attack and the other was just an absolute free-for-all. And Kai uh, on the nomad side of things as far as I read there is also something that is kind of a kind of malpractice by the project team. Um, can, can you expand on that? Is this true? So, so I, I don't think I, I have the, the details, the background on, on what the, the team did. I think one thing that was really interesting about the Nomad hack that we hadn't really seen as much before was the way it was done, other people could copy and paste uh, that attack and basically rerun it. And so some of the bridge attacks that we've seen before, it was basically one hacker you know, who found a way to exploit a smart contract 
and stole the funds out of it. Here, you know, it was like one hacker or someone started it, but then people figured out that they could repeat and just change their app, put their address in. And so it became this frenzy of, you know, you had other white hackers that were, you know, running the attack, you know, getting the funds to their wallet so that they could, you know, potentially return it. You had other, you know, hackers trying to steal the money. So it was just this mad dash of, you know, these repeated attacks happening, you know, over and over, which, you know, is is something I, I don't think we've really seen. And then going back to the the wallet, I think it is really interesting that there's an increasing familiarity with the risk that smart contracts and particularly bridges have. Uh, and so I think people are starting to, to understand, as, as Emily mentioned, we've, we've seen bridges get hacked time and time again, but there's still this notion of for wallets, it's more about the consumer and kind of consumer error of how do you manage your private keys and your seed words held inside of your non-custodial wallet. And so most of the hacks that we've seen around wallets, it's been the consumer has you know gotten fish, the consumer has you know lost their keys, and it wasn't necessarily the wallet that had the issue. This was one of the first you know wide-scale attacks that I've seen where it was a fundamental problem with the wallet or the wallets and how they were generating and managing private keys. And so this is where this concept of private key management is just absolutely critical. And there's such a high bar and such a high risk if it's not done perfectly. And it's not as simple as just, oh, custodial wallet, you know, you're trusting someone else. You know, what if they get hacked? Non-custodial wallet, you're just trusting yourself. There are still those trust layers of the way that the non-custodial wallet is designed and is operated. You could have done everything right, you know, using it as was intended, yet because of the way it generated and stored those keys, there was an issue. And so I think we're just we're learning week and week after week how far the space has to go to really be able to maintain security and prevent against you know, attacks like these. I'm going to turn to, to Paulina um, at RAMP. Um, what is the degree of education that you're seeing across the board from your users? Because this point that Kai raised is one thing is obviously the, the best practice in security and in development and in deploying software um, that is both open and decentralized. But there's also the user end, as Kai mentioned. How, how do you look for um, user education in the work they do at Ramp. Sure. So um, part of what we do is sort of safeguarding that entry into crypto, and that means that we have a lot of um, um, influence over what our users are are interacting with. And um, on one side, you want to be that guarding angel to them and tell them, uh, okay, this is trusted, this is verified. Uh, but on the other hand, you know very well, and I do know very well that uh, you know, as 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 Kai mentioned, using a non-custodial wallet and storing your seed phrase securely is not a guarantee that your funds will be safe. So I think a lot of a lot of that educating um, educational work um, needs to happen even before RAM comes into play. So even before you onboard into crypto, and doing that in a way that is not scary to users, that's there and that still underlines the benefit of using crypto as opposed to just, you know, making this as this, this very scary place where you can lose a lot of money is, uh, is super difficult. I don't think we're, we're there, yet, there yet. I don't think we can speak about the opportunities we have um, without, the, um, without, you know, making the challenges way too, way too big. Mm, but tapping into those, those hacks that you, that you mentioned, I mean, right now, I think we're going through a, a phase when we're hacking bridges. Before that, we've been hacking exchanges. And uh, with every sort of wave, we've learned something new. And um, we haven't really seen before being hacked through non-custodial wallets. It's not something that's been that common in the, in the industry. So I think that with every new wave, we learn something more about, you know, how important uh, the audits are, how important it is to actually get the person auditing smart contract code before you launch the product and not push it to go live as soon as possible just because, you know, the market wants it. So I think, you know, we learn uh, in the process. It's just bad that we're losing so much money while learning. And I, I think positives like what you're saying, I mean, it's, it's, it's early in the industry. This is not widespread. This is not happening in the whole financial system. This is still niche. Uh, although we know a lot of people in crypto space, there's still 
uh, few of us when compared to traditional market finance. So I think it's kind of a positive that we're going through these types of problems at this early stage of the development of the industry. So I'll take that as a kind of a positive. And a few other positives that emerged from this is, uh, as you mentioned, Kai, people were rushing to copy the hack on Nomad and, and, and withdraw the money. But there's also white hackers that were doing that and saying and, and going to Twitter and say, hey, I just hacked X thousand dollars from <laughs> from the Nomad bridge. Uh, FBI, don't arrest me. I'll return the money later. Right. So that is kind of another positive. And, and maybe a third positive uh, would be these are points of entry type of hacks. These are not blockchain failures. Nothing in the protocol has been compromised. It was on the entry points, which are still in development, both sides, both the wallet, which is the interface between the user and the blockchain, and uh, on the bridge, which is the interface between two blockchains. Um, turning back to you, Emily, what are other positives from episodes like this uh, as a learning experience that we can draw from such experiences? I think what it is showing specifically in the case of something like Nomad as well is that there is definitely a need to develop something other than bridges as a way to make interoperability a true goal, like something that crypto could actually achieve. Because it's becoming increasingly obvious that a multi-chain world is what crypto will need if it needs to grow bigger, if it's going to get more adoption. Um, all these siloed projects are great for developing on their own and all these individual blockchains are very useful just for you know the industry to grow at this stage. But unless interoperability can really be achieved, it kind of hits a cap, right? And while bridges were a great early solution to that, they're definitely now proving to be a, a bit of a security flaw. Now, there might be ways to fix that with bridges themselves and so increase their own security. But at present, they do seem to be a major target for bad actors as well as, you know, white hat hackers who want to gain a small bounty off the off the um off the floors that are on them and so firms like wormhole which was hacked earlier this year that runs a bridge they had to put out quite a pretty sizable bounty for white hat hackers wanting to find new floors so that they could increase security on the platform and these are things that vcs as well as bridges actually are having to now consider you know do we put aside a certain amount of funding for a um, an investment that we make in a startup for contingency planning, just in case they get hacked? How much do we have to reserve for bailout funds? Um, and so I think one positive, I guess, you could take from that is that it's showing that more development is needed and more routes are needed towards the interoperability goal because bridges on their own at present are not going to be enough. Great. Yeah, we're early because there's a lot to build, not because the prices are cheap. Absolutely. So we'll, we'll jump to the next one. And I'm going to turn to you, Kai. We're going to comment on the U.S. senators that are pushing to make a bill in the U.S. Senate to make small crypto transactions tax free. So prominent U.S. senators are trying to free Americans from tracking taxes every time cryptocurrencies changes hands, introducing a bill that would exempt them from reporting any transactions up to $50 or any trade in which they earn less than $50. Senator Patrick Toomey, a Republican, joined with Kristen Sinema, a Democrat, to push the exemption from tax requirements for crypto users making small investments or purchases. Um, this kind of follows through uh, on the uh, bill that was introduced earlier this year by Senator Cynthia Loomis and Kristen Gillibrand, uh, also a, a bipartisan bill. So we're seeing this is proper discussion of crypto adoption in the marketplace. What is the potential here, Kai? So I think that the the issue that this is trying to address is is definitely you know a challenge that you know, hurts the experience for spending you know cryptocurrency um, you know just just from a consumer perspective you know if you go and buy a cup of coffee you know with Bitcoin you know having to remember that you need to report the cost basis of you know the price you bought the Bitcoin at and the price that you sold it when you bought that coffee. You know, with the Bitcoin, um, I think has has been a pretty big challenge and, and headache. Now, you know, I think that there are some approaches to say, well, can you solve that with better, you know, software at the wallet layer um, to be able to to automatically, you know, do that and then connect it to your 
coin tracker or tax bit or whichever tax tool you're using. But even just the, the notion of having that as another kind of you know, mental transaction costs you know, before you go in and spend to say, okay, I am you know, conducting a taxable event when I buy my coffee, I think is, is something that is a, a barrier and, and challenge. And so you know, the notion of this kind of concept of a de minimis exemption, which I believe applies to you know, foreign currency, uh, if you're spending with one currency and you happen to have a gain based on when you got it under a certain amount, uh, it is not a taxable event. Um, I could see how that helps to address it. Now, my biggest question and curiosity here is like, if this were to pass, it would be a good test on of the number of challenges that are preventing the adoption and usage of cryptocurrencies you know, to be able to spend you know, day-to-day payments, how much, how big was this as one of those challenges? Because now if like, you put that aside and you don't have to worry about taxes, it doesn't mean that there isn't volatility. Um, and do consumers want to spend you know, assets that they believe will appreciate in you know, value? And I think in it also depends kind of where you look. And you know, this is focused on the United States. And so, you know, how much demand is there to directly spend Bitcoin or volatile assets? Um, it's it's not something that we've seen at scale. Uh, and so, you know, independent of you know tax treatment, you know, if that was removed, would would it catalyze you know, a wave of adoption and excitement about spending you know Bitcoin? I don't know. And I think that's that's the open question. I believe there are some other countries uh, who may have you know different tax treatment, and it's not clear if there's more demand to actually spend and, and use you know, Bitcoin and other volatile cryptocurrencies there. Um, so it's encouraging to see um, you know Congress you know people looking at you know many of the areas that you know are challenges and and wanting to work with the industry, but not clear how much this this one will will change things. Yeah, um, I think there's there's also the the question about uh, crypto being global, right? Jurisdictions don't apply; everything is borderless. So that there's obviously a challenge there. Uh, in terms of looking forward, in terms of rules and regulations, and I'm going to turn this to you, Paulina. Would stablecoins be more practical because then people can relate to that without having to, you know, the mental burden of the whole calculation and if so, then are we thinking about a dollar-based global world still in the crypto space? So I'll start with the fact that I'm 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 so happy that Kai, uh, the Kai brought up the the microtransactions and just the fact that you need to you need to be able to spend, uh, you need to be able to uh, comfortably spend crypto for you know day-to-day purchases <laughs> coming from Visa that resonates well with me on the regulation part um, and, and stable coins. So I, I, I do think that stable coins generally address the issue with, uh, with the instability of the Bitcoin price. They don't solve all the issues. I mean, we have multiple stable coins right now. We have multiple stables pegged to, to dollar, to, to euro, to British pound, to Brazilian real, and loads, loads, loads more. To be honest, I don't know the full list right now. We're working with a lot of them. But they're not the the ultimate solution to all of the all of the issues we have because they still come with their uh, own set of rules. It's just as difficult to sell a stablecoin in the given country as just to sell any other cryptocurrency. You're not only checking against securities; you're checking against uh, local laws regarding e-money and stuff like that. So that is always a complex matter. And and uh, you know, crypto being global by definition makes it uh, makes you always have to think about the global market. So I love the fact that we're uh, considering the you know tax-free small transactions because that opens up the market for microtransactions. And um, being a huge fan of blockchain gaming, for me, this is an amazing use case because there, this is where we have the biggest issues. We've managed to to solve the the issue with um, the transaction costs. We have now uh, right now we have um, low transaction costs, fast processing. We have secure blockchains, but of course, you know, you, you can never say, say that fully. Um, but uh, just the fact that you have to take every small transaction into consideration when you're setting up your uh, um, tax statement, it's, uh, it's kind of annoying and it does slow down the, the progress by, by a lot. But, but getting to a point where you can have the same regulation on tax versus crypto 
is, I think, uh, many years ahead of us. There, the laws that, uh, that I see in the US are completely different to what we have in European Union. The laws we, in the European Union are to some extent different than what we have in Poland and then in the UK. And getting to one single um, sort of um, source of truth when you have portfolios and maybe even you know multiple uh, citizenships, that's getting, uh, that's getting a lot of headache. Yeah, that's the whole debate about old frameworks do not apply to new paradigms, I guess. Yeah. Um, but to, to add instant to injury, this is a U.S. midterm elections year. Uh, Emily, you cover crypto uh, for, for a long time. What does it mean in terms of timing? Um, usually laws take a long time to pass and then the regulation obviously takes a lot of time to be implemented. Is this something that's going to take much longer and, and how much longer do you believe and what are the impacts of this taking longer to be approved? So I'm not too well versed on this particular bill that we're speaking about right now, but the broader crypto regulation bill that was submitted by Senator Lummis and Senator Gillibrand earlier this year, that's kind of upheld as the main crypto bill that's been pushed so far in, in the Senate. Um, that is not expected to be kind of on the table properly, you know, as uh, like close to becoming law until next year. And if we look broader than that, so if we go closer to my home in London, for example, in the UK, we have several um, crypto legislative proposals under consideration. Several of those have been made into, you know, legitimate documents that are going to be put forward before MPs at some point, the main one being on stable coins and bringing those operators under the same regimes as non-banks, fintech firms in the UK, for people who listen to 11FS's other podcast, Fintech Insider. But that one, again, the UK is currently embroiled in its own government disarray. We don't have a prime minister at present, really. Uh, so that one's not likely to get discussed anytime soon either. We've also got the EU and MICA, which is its landmark crypto legislation that's been working on for years at this point. That's not likely to come into, into any real sense of force until next year at the earliest, maybe even a year later than that. So even though all these big things are happening with crypto legislation at the minute, we're still definitely at least a year away, probably globally, from actually seeing any laws come into play that crypto firms can turn to to know exactly what playground they are in. And I think the harsh truth is that uh, whenever you're building, um, like it's very much applicable to what we do at RAM because we handle that fiat to crypto transition. And that is basically a very taxable event. So for us, it's very, it's very tangible. It's, it's something that we uh, deal on a daily basis and we have users coming to us saying, hey, how, how are you handling that? And uh, it's a sad thing to have to, to tell them, hey, you need to check your own laws for that. If you're coming from from uh, from this country, you need to check that. If you're coming from this country, you need to check that. So what we're working on is trying to get um, to more like universal framework because I very much agree with uh, Emily that it's going to take us a long time before we see you know uh, like universal tax scheme for for crypto, and before that we need to deal. We need to buy. We need to sell. We need to trade. We need to use it, and we need tools that are going to help us actually manage that. Yeah. And I think the notion that it's it's not even just about you know spending cryptocurrencies you know, for day-to-day purchases like coffee, there are things like buying NFTs or you know, buying assets inside of a game. And so those are very real transaction flows that you know, there have been billions of dollars spent and a lot of it you know, are people spending ETH you know, to buy an NFT. And so just the 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 challenges for you know people to to track and report and having the software and that, that can you know, do it for them, I think there are a lot of ways that it could become easier and, and more standardized over time. Big opportunity there for any builders listening to this. And uh, maybe uh, time for network uh, states, like Balaji said. Uh, with that, we're going to wrap up this first part of the show. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Visa one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Welcome back. 
For the second half of the show, we're starting off with Revolut partners with Polkadot and launches Learn to Earn feature. So Unicorn financial platform Revolut is working with the Polkadot network to advance crypto education through this Learn to Earn feature. Uh, the users will be able to receive crypto for learning essential topics about crypto and blockchain. And this is you know, available to, sounds like all Revolut users. And they say over 1 million people have completed Revolut's education course in the first month since its launch. Uh, so maybe start, start with you, Mauricio, of what do you think about kind of the direction that these you know, traditional fintech neobanks are heading you know, as it comes to crypto. You know, we've seen Cash App, uh, you know, we've seen SoFi, we've seen many of these companies kind of come into this space. What are your thoughts on this, this next step that Revolut is taking? If, if there's one X to earn or whatever to earn model that can really take off, I think it's the learn to earn, right? Because it immediately impacts the ability of the users to actually go and use the service. Right? You don't know anything you get to earn for you to learn. And now you're immediately thrown into the same thing you were learning before, but now you know how to use it. You feel proficient. You want to tackle it. So I think this is a very interesting opportunity. And we're obviously talking about financial services here, which is kind of the core of Revolut. But if you think about anything that you would require some level of skill for you to use, and then you start to use it, and then you start to pay for it, and then that creates the circular economy, that might be a more sustainable um, way of doing things than the, the traditional player and games that we, um, we've come to, to know from the last wave of the to-earn movement. So I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting bet by Revolut, and the numbers kind of speak for themselves, right? There's over a million people already going through the program, and what I'm interested to see as these things develop is how many of those are actively using Revolut's crypto service as a result of learning uh, a lot from that. Because that's, I think, it's the play, right? It's, you could call it a marketing uh, budget, but you're calling it a training budget for your you know, end users. I think that's a pretty clever way of actually spending that money. And, and Emily, how, how do you feel like this fits into Revolut's broader you know, crypto strategy and, and like... What would you do if you were at Revolut and kind of how does learning about it fit in with some of the trading and the other you know, products that they've been building? I think it's a good move from Revolut's part in terms of trying to do more on what the regulator is asking, which is educating people about crypto before they get involved in it. However, that said, having I, I have not personally gone through the process because I'm not allowed to earn any crypto, but a somebody at the FT did. They wrote a very interesting blog post about it over on FT Alphaville, George Steer. Um, and the questions themselves weren't necessarily the kinds of things that would, you know, open you up to the regulatory side of crypto or the risks of buying crypto. It was more about learning about the dot ecosystem and how blockchain works and how a wallet works. And while that's all very useful information, it's probably less so on the regulation side. So really what I think this product is is serving to do is to bring more people into the space of not seeing crypto as this massive mountain that you have to climb education-wise before you can really understand what you're doing. If you can get your head around the basics, then maybe you'd feel more comfortable investing in it. That doesn't take away from the fact that you still need to be addressing these parts of the systems where, you know, lots of people are buying crypto without realizing the financial risk of that. And the fact that a bank is the one doing that is obviously telling as well. They should be an institution that upholds that kind of absolute paramount. Um, so whether or not that needs to be, you know, a focus of any of these other learn to earn programs that it might expand into or do for other cryptocurrencies, perhaps that's the case. Um, but at least, you know, as, as a base step, it is getting people more comfortable with the jargon around crypto. And if they were then to go and research other cryptocurrencies they might want to invest in, other tokens they might like, they would then be more equipped to understand what it is they're looking at. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point about disclosures around risks versus just understanding, you know, basics of the technology. And uh, we did an episode, I think, uh, you know, 
earlier this year with Chris Bremer, who talked about like this opportunity to rethink how disclosures work and make them more accessible and you know, more interactive rather than you know just have it as a, a long document that someone is is reading. And so it feels like that's an opportunity that you know, we haven't really seen uh, you know, any companies you know, take advantage of yet. But Paulina, Paulina, what are your thoughts on this? And, and particularly, how does it compare to we've seen you know, Coinbase Earn, we've seen you know, Rabbit Hole. Uh, like, do you feel like these types of programs you know, are effective? And from the, the ramp perspective, you know, do, do you see kind of a need for these like ecosystem partnerships you know, between a fintech or a crypto company and a blockchain protocol or foundation uh, to be able to, to to drive this education. So I actually went through the uh, for one of the not not I didn't go through the whole, uh, for an entire course, but I went through for a part of that. And that uh, no, it's a, a it's a flashing nice marketing thing. But as as Emily mentioned, it, it's very um, it's sort of superficial. It does touch up on on uh, on some issues within within crypto, but uh, I, I don't think it's a it's like Revolut's position to address the you know the, the the legal responsibilities they have with regards to crypto. I think it's just PR about you know making sure that Revolut is perceived as as being very close with crypto, and that's very consistent with their previous strategy, and that works well with the fact they're still struggling with the lack of non custodial accounts. Still, the money you have on, on Revolut is just an exposition to, to, to price fluctuations, not crypto itself. And until they roll out the, the um, WebTrow function, it's going to stay the same. But how does it put the whole ecosystem partnership into context? So I've seen, I, I think also Coinbase did that with, they did that with some other uh, ecosystem. I'm not sure what it was right now, but uh, I remember also going for, the, for those courses. And that's, it sounds like we have a trend of getting a Polkadot, uh, a Polkadot with a Revolut, getting them together, uh, doing some uh, some nice marketing work. And that this advances the, the whole community. And I'm happy that they're doing that because that brings yet more attention to, to projects like that. Um, the projects like Polkadot, uh, they need that kind of recognition from, from fintechs as well um, to be more appealing to, to enterprise customers, to investors and so on, so on. Um, but do I think it's it's that efficient? Probably not. And uh, honestly, if you're starting crypto and your first blockchain that you want to explore is Polkadot, that is starting on a high note, given how actually complex that is. And I, I, I've been in crypto for the last four years, and uh, Polkadot is the first blockchain that actually caused me a lot of issues because of the relay chain and how they're addressing, addressing the blockchain um, trilemma. So it's not an easy thing to understand. And... Um, if you really want to, I, I would love to see courses that actually give you tools to find your way around blockchain, like a very usable tool, a uh, very usable guide on how to actually use it, what to look out for, uh, what is safe to do in crypto, what is not safe to do in crypto. Something that is in a, a constant struggle for, I think, everybody working in the fiat crypto zones is, is just the, the, how very often people are sending money to random addresses. It, they're just given an address and they're sending money randomly, totally blind. And that's uh, uh, let's let's do a, a, a training session on that first because this, to me, looks like a much bigger, much bigger issue. Yeah, it's it's interesting that there's almost like a, a selection bias here, and that sometimes the the ecosystems most willing to fund you know these types of campaigns and programs may be the ones that are that have the least you know, adoption and, and aren't as mature and, and easy to use versus the ones that are better for people to start in aren't you know giving grants and, and funding you know, aggressive you know, user acquisition campaigns because they don't you know, really need to. Um, and so I, I think and then also this shift of going from learning like taking a quiz and reading to like actually using some of these technologies, and learning how to use them in a safe way, I, I think, is is important. But Mariso, you you had a comment on that? Yeah, I, I think I think one of the things that are interesting. I mean, traditional finance has been around for centuries, and there's a lot they learned that we can take advantage of. We don't need to throw the baby with the bathwater, right? So, I think the suitability aspect of things, right? If you're a, a traditional banking consumer or company, and you want to do some forms of investment that are different you go through a suitability assessment, whether you're capable of understanding 
the inherent risks of that investment. Um, right now, it's just a piece of paper or a table in a system somewhere that is siloed in the banks. But I think the chance now for us in Web3 is to actually write those credentials on chain and then make the actual adoption of such a process more automated. So we don't run the risk of having a person who just did the quiz sending the wrong thing to the wrong address when they actually get to do that because now you know that they can't perform that action without further guidance because they don't have the credentials on their wallet. So I think there is a world of possibilities for improving suitability that the whole primitive of Web3 will enable. And I think seeing these programs to be based on Web2 technologies when we have Web3 technologies that enable you know, much more and better things are something that I'm really, really wanting to see. Yep. So moving on to the next story, the Muse NFT album to become first new chart eligible format in seven years. So when British rock band Muse releases their ninth studio album, Will of the People, on August 26th, the NFT edition will become the first release of its kind to qualify for the charts in the UK and Australia. So this is the first new format to be added to the charts since album streams in 2015. So this is going to be sold via an eco-friendly NFT platform called Serenade, um, of which the founder you know, describes this as a kind of utilitarian digital format that's straightforward to buy, and that when a fan wants something simple and understandable, gives them a sense of proximity to an artist and recognition from other fans. And unlike with many NFTs, the buyers will not require a crypto wallet. And so, Emily, maybe let, let's start with you. What what do you make of this? Is this a is this a, a stunt? You know, do you think there'll be demand for this? And do music NFTs make sense? I've seen a lot of debates on Twitter, you know, in the past week of, you know, is there a there there for music NFTs? I definitely think this is a marketing strategy. They they already said that, you know, this isn't expected to significantly skew the anticipated chart performance of the album. So it's not going to be the kind of situation where they're selling these NFTs because they want, you know, it to help the album chart better. Or to, you know, if everybody goes off the NFT and pushes up the price because they think this is something that's going to become scarce and will have artificial value that they can then resell on, um, like with any popular blue chip NFT collection, that that they don't expect that to be happening in this instance. Um, so it's definitely like, you know, another kind of merchandising opportunity, pretty much. This is them selling an album and saying, we're not just going to do t-shirts or a special edition that you can buy in a, in a nice CD case in your local record store. Um, this is also, we're going to do a digital version of that as well. And if you're a really big Muse fan, maybe you'll want to buy it. That's helped by the fact that you won't have to pay for in crypto for it. You can buy it with regular fiat currency. And I'd be interested actually to hear maybe even Paulina's views on that, because on the one hand, it's it's a great way to get more people into buying things that are digital assets by letting them use their, their fiat currency and they then don't have to have crypto at the outset. But equally, is somebody really understanding what they're buying in terms of the value of an NFT and the fact that it's a digital asset that is that is in Web3 and not Web2 if you're just using pounds and dollars to buy it and not, not having to interact with the crypto system in a meaningful way? Well, I think that um, I, I don't know the um, the use case behind behind Serenade that that well, so I'll, I'll, I'll do my checks later on. Um, but from what I know about them, uh, they're you're actually buying an actual NFT. It's just a purchase process that is uh, you're, you're sort of not being asked to submit your wallet beforehand. You can create it with them, so it still it still has that crypto layer complexity. You still own that um, that that wallet ev- eventually. You don't you don't have to have it at the beginning, but you're going to end up having it. And then you're doing a transaction via I think Coinbase and and Stripe in there. And uh, I think that simplifies the things uh, in the in the process. I think eventually we're not going to be required to buy nfts with uh with crypto we're going to be treating it just as any other crypto we're going to be buying it directly with cart um and i think it's going to get us a bit closer to that to that stage however is it safe to uh step over all of that and get your hands on on, on nfts right away without really understanding what you got 
it's it's a uh, it's definitely good for mass adoption. It's also good for a lot of people who are not really aware of what they bought and uh, why they paid for that. And I think it's it ties very well with the um, question for the use case for music NFTs. If it's a collectible, and I think we're looking at the, at this this album as a as a collectible, it's uh, it's 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 it made sense in the previous bull run. It's gonna make sense in the in the next ones, but to to some to some extent, um, uh, I definitely think that anything that we do that brings more people interested and more people hyped about uh, crypto is good for us. We're gonna have some backlash over that, but I don't think we should have any backlash over the muse collectible album although you know the last song i heard from them was probably around the twilight era so probably not the best audience there <laughs> sorry that's that generation is just ruined <laughs> i will i will add though that i do think something that's interesting is the fact that um everybody who signs up to buy one of these will have the first thousand will have their name permanently inked on a digital register of purchases um and i saw a very good point raised on twitter that this raises quite a lot of GDPR questions, you know, having your name permanently registered somewhere for that long. And even just the involvement of a company like Warner in this, you can only imagine probably the length of the terms and conditions you'd have to sign before you buy this NFT. And I I wonder how that compares to the typical Web3 journey and whether or not introducing these additional layers of friction really kind of honors the fact that you're buying an nft and that this is supposed to be an easier process and the way of the future and the way we transact when the fact that we have such a big company involved in it at this stage in in web 3's history is kind of like yeah it's going to be very very legally i think yeah it seems like there there are these fascinating experiments around uh like collector attribution and this notion of like why does someone want to collect and hold an NFT in the first place? And how much is it this social signaling mechanism where they want other fans uh, to know that they are the collector of that NFT, which today is, is not particularly easy to identify. If you look at most either art NFTs or music NFTs to be able to say, okay, here are the fans who are the biggest collectors of them. Uh, it's not readily apparent. And so for the artists to, to have some, some way to give exposure to those fans, is that going to be a powerful signaling mechanism, despite some of the challenges of, of doing that in a uh, etched in forever way? But Mauricio, your, your thoughts on, on this specific album and, and music NFTs? So I think the first thing that comes to mind is that they're going to be topping the charts of NFT albums because <laughs> they're the only ones there. Um, and the second thing that kind of hit me when I read this the first time is that um, if, if uh, the DeFi mullet is FinTech in the front and DeFi in the back, with the involvement of Warner on this, is this the MooFi, the music, <laughs> uh, or the, the DMU or decentralized music? Because uh, the DMU mullet, because the thing is, the, the whole purpose of the um, music NFT movement, as far as I'm, I'm aware, is to bridge uh, the relationship between fans and artists, right? Um, just to come back to what your previous point about collectability, um, if, 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 say, I'm, I'm launching my bands, because uh, I have a band, let me show that. Um, if I'm, I'm launching my band's NFT uh, song and Koopa Troopa, one of the you know, most prominent collectors, um, of music NFTs picks one up, that gives a lot of credibility to the project, right? So again, it's a, a two-hand relationship where uh, fans want to collect the albums or the NFTs of the artists that they admire, but also upcoming bands want to be collected by these massive collectors. And because we're in public blockchains, we can now know who's collecting what, which creates this form of credentialization of the careers, which obviously tend to appreciate over time. So I think it's an interesting take uh, that they're trying to do that in a way. And uh, I think I agree with Paulina, the fact that people will not be required to have a pre-existing wallet or crypto to actually go and buy that. And that is the onboarding process of people uh, into the world of Web3 through you know, the fandom of, of Muse 
is is an important uh, step towards more uh, uh, wider adoption. Um, the only thing that I think is that if it's not properly educated, um, then we're going to see all the drawbacks of not being uh, educated enough uh, to do the right thing, but be educated enough to do the wrong thing with these things. So I think that's that's also something to kind of uh, take into account here. But all in all, I'm just happy that they're putting out new music. <laughs> It seems like there, there's an interesting use case for like proof of discovery, uh, particularly for emerging artists to be able to say you discovered that band or artist at a certain point and prove it because you have the NFT, which is very different than an already established uh, band or musician that you're collecting. Uh, but moving on to, uh, I think there are a few stories uh, that are you know honorable mentions that we didn't have time to unpack fully, but uh, one is that we had the Dubai Crown Prince to lead a new committee on metaverse and digital economy. And so Dubai wants to become a global hub for futuristic technologies. And so there is the higher committee for future technology and digital economy chaired by uh, Dubai Crown Prince, uh, Sheikh uh, Hamdan. And so this is trying to consolidate Dubai's position as a global hub for these innovative concepts. Uh, it's super interesting to see how many metaverse committees and chief metaverse officers and uh, a lot of uh, fascination with these concepts while still in a very early stage and unclear what exactly the committee would do in, in the physical world that would help you know, to accelerate you know, the digital world of metaverse. Uh, then we have the uh, news from the new bank movement in uh, offering crypto trades through their platform, they reached 1 million crypto customers in less than a month. Brazilian Challenger Bank, Nubank, has reached 1 million cryptocurrency customers in less than a month since the launch of its crypto offering by the end of June. The milestone was reached three weeks after the Nubank started to offer Bitcoin and Ethereum to most popular cryptocurrencies to their entire base of 60 million users. In an interview with uh, Brazilian website NeoFeed, Nubank CEO and co-founder David Vallas said that reaching 1 million crypto users was a goal for a year from now. He also noted the goal is to popularize access to crypto assets through its mobile app. Uh, pretty interesting numbers. Uh, the speed in which these um, was reached is, is, is mind-blowing, to be honest. I mean, I know that 60 million users, but... Um, I would never guess that uh, over a million users at that client base were crypto savvy or crypto interested or crypto curious. Uh, so it's interesting to see that uh, type of movement. Uh, there is a lot of criticism that this is a custodial wallet. So you, you can't withdraw your crypto. You can move your crypto outside of new banks uh, ecosystem or app for the time being. But again, uh, early days for a new bank in starting that movement. And after they did that, a number of other banks in Brazil um, started to move into the space as well or announced that they were moving into the space. So all in all, uh, good provocation by Veles and the new bank, uh, new bank folks. With that, we jump into Tweet of the Week. That's our last segment of today's show. And we want to give a shout out to the Tweet of the Week, uh, which is from Tiffany & Co. Yes, the jury. They tweeted, the future is here. And it's called NFTIF. 5th of August, 30th. Discover more. There's a link. Hashtag NFTIF. Hashtag Tiffany and Co. And I want to hear a quick five-second, ten-second opinion of each of you what this means to the world right now. So I'm going to start with Paulina. Um, five, se five seconds. The last time I, rem uh, I, uh, I remember that uh, big announcement, there was, a, there was a vulnerability in the code and someone bought all the NFTs before the sale went out. So I hope they checked for that particular one. I don't remember what that was, but I can send links afterwards. <laughs> Kai? I'm pretty sure they, they ended up selling out. Uh, you know, my question was just like, what, what other sales were made? Because I can't imagine coming home with you know, spending that much on an NFT pendant without purchasing a significant other uh, like gift as well. And so I would imagine that it drove some additional purchases because you can't just come home with that. That's not going to work. And you, Emily? 
I think I actually wrote about this story when it when it came out because it was at the same time that Gucci said it was accepting ApeCoin in its stores now. Um, and we did a piece at Bloomberg on kind of how luxury firms are getting involved in NFTs. And so I think for, for me, the standout point on this one and in Gucci's case is that it's crypto at an arm's length in a way, because in this case, it's you're buying a, a real NFT, but it's a digital pass to a physical item. Um, so while you get to keep it in your wallet, it was mainly just to prove that then you could then exchange it to get a physical thing, which kind of brings everybody back to the fungibility of assets. Um, and in Gucci's case as well, ApeCoin is listed on the the cryptocurrencies it now accepts as payment, but actually Gucci only ever receives dollars because it's a it's another company that deals with the crypto for it and then gives Gucci the money. Um, so these are all kind of examples, I think, of how brands are slowly coming on the Web3 journey, but they're not necessarily taking the full step. Yeah, well, however uh, they did it, they sold out in 20 minutes, raising $12.5 million. So that wraps up this week's news shows. Just a quick reminder to let you know that the views of our panel are their own and not necessarily the opinions of the companies that they are representing. Thank you so much to all our guests. Uh, and where can people find more about you, Paulina? So you can go to ram.network to read more about Ramp, what we do, get in partnership with us. And if you want to uh, reach me directly, go to Twitter, find my profile. We're going to drop it in the, uh, um, in the podcast link. And if you want to meet me in person, we're organizing a first Ethereum-focused conference in Warsaw at the beginning of September. And I'll be one of the speakers there. So if you want to come hang around, uh, just DM me and, and we can make that happen. Thanks a lot for having me here today. Thank you, Paulina. Emily. So you can follow me on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole. That's mainly where I hang out. Um, but you can also read my stories on Bloomberg.com slash crypto or on the Bloomberg terminal if you have a subscription. And I also regularly write the Bloomberg crypto newsletter, which is free to read and sign up for. And it comes out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Thank you. Kai. On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and Visa.com slash crypto. And as for me, 11fs.com, 0xMauricio on Twitter, Mauricio Magaldi on LinkedIn, and we'll see you around. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really love the show, please leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11fs or Blockchain Insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.